in uh, 2001, there was a professor in uh, Bordeaux, France, at a uh, school for winemaking and wine tasting. And he decided to do a couple of different experiments with his classes. So in the first experiment, what he did is he took two glasses of wine, a glass of red wine and a glass of white wine, and he asked the students to describe all the characteristics of the flavor of the two wines and and write them down in as much detail as possible. What he failed to tell his students is that both wines were exactly the same wine. He just added some red dye to the white wine to make it look like a red wine. And, and it was really interesting because as they, as they tasted that, they came up with completely different flavor profiles for the two wines, even though they were exactly the same. And not one of the 54 students was able to tell that the red wine was actually a white wine with some dye in it. Then he did another test. He took some really expensive wine. And he emptied out a bottle of cheap wine, I guess like two buck chuck or something like that. And he uh, poured the really expensive wine into the into the expense or the the cheap wine into the expensive bottle. And then he gave him that wine, and he gave him some more of the cheap wine. And again, he asked him to describe all the the flavors and everything of the two wines. Well, the the wine that was in the cheap bottle, they described it as being kind of flat and unbalanced. But the wine that was in the expensive bottle, even though it was the exact same wine, they said it was well-balanced and complex. And it, it just goes to point out how, how much the way we look at the world is influenced by, by the things, our own perceptions, our own preconceived ideas, right? And the same thing can be true when it comes to the Bible, unfortunately. We can, we can come to the Bible with our own our own preconceived ideas about what it says to us. This morning we're going to look at a passage that uh, I think a lot of people would consider to be one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand. And um, I think part of the reason for that is that a lot of people come to this passage with some preconceived theological ideas and they try to kind of force the text to fit into their preconceived ideas. But I can tell you this for sure, when, when this letter was written, by whoever the author was, we don't really know for sure, that author didn't know anything about Jacob Arminius or John Calvin. They weren't even born for another 1,500 years. And if you don't know who those people are, that's probably to your advantage this morning, because it means that you won't come to this text with some preconceived ideas, with some preconceived theologies, and try to kind of force the text to to fit into those ideas. Now, I'm going to do my best this morning to to just come to the text with fresh eyes. But I'll admit, I have my own biases too, theological biases. But but I really tried this week as I as I looked at this passage, or over the, actually a couple of weeks ago as I prepared this message, to to try to kind of set those aside and just look at what the text says. And I'm not sure that I've done that perfectly, but but I'm going to share with you just what God's put on my heart from this passage today. I'm just going to tell you right up front: there are a lot of people who are smarter than I am, a lot of people who are much more educated than I am that have come to some different conclusions that I have. But I just really feel like as your pastor, it's my responsibility to take 
what God lays on my heart as I study these passages each week and to believe that the Holy Spirit will guide me to share with you what God has on His heart for our congregation. So with that in mind, go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 12 this morning, kind of pick up where uh, Ryan left off last week. So Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, there's really, I think, one word in this passage that's the key to understanding it. And it's probably not the word that you think. It's the little three-letter word for that comes at the beginning of this passage. And here's the reason that is so crucial is because what it does, it connects what the author is about to write here with what he wrote in the section just right before that, the section that, that Ryan covered really well in his message last week. And in that section, it talked about the fact that we need to be careful not to, to fall back in our, in our pursuit of God, that we can't get lazy in our pursuit of God, that we have to grow up, that we can't just continue to live on spiritual milk, that we need spiritual meat. And I believe that, that the key to this passage is to understand that what the author is doing here is to just explain further why that is the case. There's also another th- another thing that connects this passage to what Ryan preached on last week and we see it here at the end of this passage in verse 12 in verse 12 we see the word sluggish and in your English Bibles you probably don't realize it but it's the exact same underlying Greek word that we saw last week in chapter 5 verse 11 when it said you have become dull of hearing so the word sluggish and dull are the same so it's almost like the author is told us this all fits together because he's bookended it at both ends with the exact same word that ties this all together. And so I think that's really one of the keys for us to be able to understand what we're going to look at here together this morning. As I said, I'm going to do my best this morning to just let the text speak for itself. And as I've studied this passage over the last several weeks and looked at it and looked at different commentators, looked at different pastors who were, who were common, you know, making commentary on it and having sermons on it, one of the things I discovered is that there's all these, these different ideas about it, but really, 
Essentially, it comes down to answering three different questions. So I'm going to do my best to help you to understand the answer to those questions this morning. But I'm going to, I'm going to approach this, this whole passage a little bit differently than I normally do. You'll notice in your sermon outline this morning, I haven't given you a main idea. I haven't given you blanks to fill in with the answers to these three questions that we're going to look at. And that was on purpose. It was funny, on, on uh, Thursday last week, Paul was getting ready to print the bulletins, and he messaged me. He says, isn't there supposed to be something there? And I said, no, I, I left that blank on purpose this week. And here's the reason for that. I, I want you to just write down your own answers to these questions. I'm going to give you a, a moment to do that as we go through each of them. And then at the end, I want you to come up with your own idea of what the main idea, the main theme of the passage is this week. And then I'm going to ask you to do something else. I want you to, to take some time this week to share those with each other using our Faith Life platform. I think that's a great way for us to learn from each other and kind of carry on the discussion that we're having this morning. So, so I want to encourage you to do that. So with that in mind, let's look at these, these three questions that we need to answer. Here's the first question. Is the author writing to Christians or is he writing to non-Christians? a really good question right and we're going to find out that the answer to all these questions this morning is really dependent on making sure that we look at this passage in its proper context and so I'm going to talk a lot about context this morning and the first thing we have to do here is we have to answer this question based on the context of the entire letter and remembering that we, as we determined at the very beginning, that this author is probably writing to a local congregation, one probably somewhat like ours, and he's writing to a, a group that that's, has a lot of different people in it. But his main point is he's trying to convince those who are genuine disciples of Jesus not to return back to their Jewish faith. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is far superior to anything else that they could ever go back to. And so he's writing primarily to Christians. Now, this is the third warning that we've seen in the book of Hebrews. And, and as I mentioned with the first two, I'm trying to really approach these pastorally. And I think that's what the writer was trying to do here. He's writing to a church where there would have been some people who are just hearing about Jesus for the first time. He's writing to some who maybe look like Christians on the outside who really weren't. But he's writing primarily to those who already had put their faith in, in Jesus, who are genuine followers of Jesus. And so we need to keep that context in mind. We also need to look at the text itself. And in the text here, in verses 4 and 5, he gives us these four descriptions of the, the kind of person that he's writing to. And as you just look at those, it, I mean, on the surface, i got to tell you, when I just read those on the surface, that sounds a lot like a Christian to me. Those who have been once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Now, I will admit, taken separately, you can't make a case ironclad that this is definitely describing Christians. But when you put them all together, that's what it looks like to me. It's really interesting to me this week, those, those pastors, those theologians, those commentators that approach this passage and they want to argue that this is not written to real Christians, they can come up with all kinds of ways to explain 
why this is not describing genuine disciples of Jesus. But I got to tell you, when I just look at the, the text itself, I'm not really convinced a lot by their arguments. The other thing I think is really important here is if you look at those words that I've highlighted there, enlightened, tasted, shared, those words are all used elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, and every single time they're used in the book of Hebrews, they are very clearly used to describe those who are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. So, let me ask you to go ahead and to, to answer that first question. Is the author writing to Christians or non-Christians? I'll give you a second to answer that. Now, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Go ahead and get in line. There are plenty of other people who disagree with me too on this. But given the context and the text itself, I think you know what my answer would be. And I think the reason that a lot of people are, are hesitant to, to claim that this is really being written to Christians is that is because of the way they answer the second two questions that we're going to look at this morning. So let's move on to the second question that we need to answer, and that's this. What does it mean to, quote, fall away? He says, be careful here that you don't fall away, but, but what exactly does that mean? What does he mean by fall away? And again, context is king here to answering that question. So let's look first at the, the big context, the, the letter as a whole. And as I just mentioned a moment ago, what's, what's the purpose of this letter? He's writing to Christians. He's warning them against falling away from their faith in Jesus Christ and going back to the life that they, that they lived before that. A life in which they followed all the Jewish religion and the Jewish customs and, and traditions and all those kind of things. So we need to keep that in mind. The second context that we need to, to, to look at here is, is how this, the example of Israel failing to enter the promised land. We saw that back in, in chapters 3 and 4, and that really is, a, I think, a lead into here. It's really a lead into this entire section that we're going to be looking at here. And remember what happened back in chapters 3 and 4. He talked, remember, about God's rest, and we determined there that God's rest was not equal to to salvation and even back there he talked about unbelief and the the penalty for unbelief and we'll get to this again in a moment the penalty for unbelief was not losing their salvation the penalty for unbelief was that they failed to enjoy the blessings of their relationship with God and so we need to keep that in mind here so and he actually gave them a warning back in chapters three and four against falling away you'll find those same words used back there again so so there must be some kind of connection with that and what that meant to fall away and as we saw when we looked at that that section a lot of those people they repented they returned to God and God made it really clear in the book of numbers he says I've forgiven them but they didn't get to enter into the promised land and and that's going to kind of be part of the answer to our next question that we'll get into so we need to keep that context the next context and this is probably the most important is that that section right before this and Ryan did a great job last week of of describing what it's like to not grow up in our faith with Jesus and the dangers of that and I think this is leading right into here that one of the dangers of not growing up is that we will fall away 
we won't be obedient. If we're not doing something to intentionally grow in our relationship with God, we have this danger of falling away. It doesn't necessarily mean we lose our salvation. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But it does mean that we can fall away. We can can lose out on some of the benefits of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then finally, the last piece of context that we want to look at this morning is that this entire section that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 10. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that at the end of chapter 4, the writer's talking about Jesus as our great high priest. And then chapters 5 through 10, he goes on to explain more about what that means. What are the benefits of Jesus being our great high priest? And this whole section, it doesn't necessarily focus so much on salvation, although that's, that's wrapped up in there, but the primary focus of this section is is how Jesus, as our great high priest, makes it possible for us to boldly enter before the throne of grace and receive help in our time of need. And it also talks about the fact that that Jesus is an example of how we can persevere in our trials so that we can be faithful to God even in the midst of those trials. And that's the primary focus of this, this whole section. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a little bit more time here on this last one just because we're not so familiar with the, the role of the high priest in the, in the Jewish sacrificial system. In that system, the primary role of the sacrifices that were made were actually to restore a relationship with God. They actually weren't entirely or even not mostly for the purpose of taking care of the sins of the people. And we know this because a little later on in the book of Hebrews, when we get to chapter 10, we're going to run across these two verses that explain that the blood of animals could never take away sin. Here's the first one. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, where he writes, It is impossible, same word he uses here, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And second, we see this a few verses later, And he says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see, even in the Old Testament sacrificial system, if you read carefully about it, you'll find that the sacrifices that the high priest made, they only covered unintentional sins. Did you realize that in the Old Testament system, there really weren't sacrifices if you intentionally rebelled against God? If you intentionally committed sins, there was no sacrifice for that. Now, you could be be forgiven for that sin, but first you had to repent, and and in many cases you had to make restitution before that happened. And then you could go and you could make a sacrifice. So, so in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the primary purpose was to restore one's relationship with God. And the example that, that, that we saw with the, the nation of Israel, I think, is really instructive here. Because we find that the people, they never lost their position as God's people, right? Even when they rebelled against Him. Those who repented, God says, I forgive them, they're still my people, even though they don't get to enter the promised land. And so I think when we put all this together, the picture we get that this idea of falling away, what it means is that 
that we fail to take advantage of the fact that Jesus is our high priest. That we go back to living the way that we used to live before Jesus was in our life. Because that's what these, these Jews were tempted to do. They were tempted to go back to their old religious system, which was all dependent on what they could do to earn their way to God. And we're tempted to go back to the way that we used to live in a time when, when, in which we try to take care of everything on our own. That when we ran into problems, we tried to take care of them ourselves. We didn't go to Jesus. We didn't go to the throne of grace and seek God's help. We tried to do it on our own. So to me, that's what it means to fall away. Now, once again, I'm going to ask you to answer that question on your own, and you're still free to disagree with me. Again, plenty of people that do that, so just go ahead and get in line. But to me, that's what it means here when you take it in the, in the larger context. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some, some really horrible consequences to our sin that there aren't horrible consequences to falling away, that there aren't horrible consequences to failing to grow up. So that leads us to the last question, and that is this. What is the, quote, penalty, unquote, for falling away? What happens when I fall away? Let me tell you what I don't think it is right up front. I don't think that it is losing our salvation. I don't think the writer of Hebrews had in mind at all that that somehow that these people were gonna that were gonna lose their salvation if they if they fell away and I don't think that's true for us either I think there's just too much else in the scripture that indicates that because we don't do anything in the first place to earn our salvation there's also nothing that we're going to do to lose it so if that's the case what is the penalty then Let's look at this next verse, I think, that'll, that'll help us to, uh, to get some ideas about what that might be. It says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now there Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to believers, and he's talking about whether something is useful or not useful. And and he makes it really clear there, their salvation is not at stake. What's at stake, though, what's going to be burned up is is the worthless things they do. And we see this same thing here in Hebrews, don't we? He gives us this illustration to to show us what the penalty is. And here he says he talks about land. And notice here, this is really important in Hebrews, that land is singular. Land, one piece of land. It's not two different lands. And so this is not analogous to the parable of the soils. In the parable of the soils, it's clear there were four kinds of soils that represented four kinds of humans. So here, this is one piece of land. So you don't have two different lands, one that represents a believer, one that represents an unbeliever. It's the same piece of land. I think it's talking about believers here. And you'll notice here that that what happens with this piece of land is that there are blessings and curses. He introduces the whole idea of blessings and curses here. And the, the, the readers of this letter would have been familiar with that because that was the whole basis of the Old Covenant. 
You see this primarily back in Deuteronomy in chapters 28 through 30. And, and in those three chapters, God lays out the blessings for obedience and the curses that came with disobedience. And he also lays out there what would happen if they disobeyed and then they were repenting and came back to God and how God would take and, and remove the curses or he would pour in new blessings. Now, it's clear that doesn't mean that they got away from the consequences of their sin. But God, God was willing to forgive if they would come to repentance in him. And the purpose of those curses in the Old Testament was always so that Israel would come back to God. That's why God had the, the, the curses. So what do you see in the whole history of Israel? You see that, that Israel obeys God and they're being blessed. And then they come to a point of disobedience and God curses them. And those curses are, are used to bring the people back to God and they repent and they come back to God and God blesses them again. And you see this cycle going on over and over and over again. But there, again, their salvation was never at stake. They were never in danger of not being God's people. And that's what's happening here. And it's really important to notice, notice that this same piece of land, that on one hand it can produce great fruit, those are those Christians that are obedient to God, that live according to the principles that are laid out in His Word, they're blessed and they produce fruit. And those Christians who choose not to grow up, as Ryan talked about last week, who want to remain spiritual babies, what happens is they produce thorns and thistles. And it's really important to note this. What gets burned up in this passage? It's not the land. It's the thorns and the thistles. And I think that's the same exact thing that Paul talked about here in 1 Corinthians. It's, it, it's not the, the person that gets burned up. They're not in danger of losing their salvation. But the works that they do that, that, that have no value, those are in danger of being burned up. And so I think that's what, what he's talking about here. So the penalty, the penalty for falling away from God is, is not that we lose our salvation. It's that we lose out on the blessings that God has for us. And it might mean that we incur some of those curses or we incur some of God's discipline, which we're going to see later in Hebrews chapter 12. Some of that discipline that's always purpose is always to restore us back to this fellowship with God. So what are some of the implications for me? There, there's a ton of them, but let me just share with you, I think, three of them that we can pull out of here this morning. Before we do that, you go ahead and take a, a second if you want to answer that last question. What is the penalty for falling away? So here are the implications. Let me, like I say, share three of them. The first one is this. Don't unnecessarily question my salvation. That's not the purpose here. The writer of Hebrews is not trying to get genuine Christians to begin to question whether or not they're really genuine Christians. That's what he talks about here, about the, the full assurance of their hope. He wants them to know without a doubt that their salvation is assured. He's not in any way trying to get them to doubt that. And, and I don't want you to do that either. That's not my purpose at all. I hope I made that really clear from the beginning 
of studying the book of Hebrews is that the book is not about trying to get us to unnecessarily doubt our salvation. Now, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, that's a whole different story. But if you've genuinely put your faith in Jesus, if you've made him your Lord and your Savior, then this is not to get you to go around and question your salvation or to doubt your salvation. Second thing, don't go back. Don't go back. Occasionally, I go and I take some uh, golf lessons from a friend of mine, and my golf game really needs those lessons, so that's not surprising. And what I find is when I go to those lessons, one of the hardest things that he has to do is he has to get me to break some bad habits that I have with my golf swing. And, and if I actually practice what he shows me, and I do it over and over and over and over again, I can finally get to the place where my swing's a little better. Now, my golf game still needs a whole lot of work, believe me. But at least I get a little better because I get rid of some of those old bad habits. But here's what happens. When I get out on the golf course and I'm faced with a difficult shot or maybe I need to hit the ball a little further than, than I'm capable of, what do I do? I revert back to all my old bad habits. And the results are never good when that happens. And that's really what he's telling him here. He says, don't go back to that. He says, you have this relationship with Jesus in which he's your great high priest. He provides you the ability to go boldly before the throne of grace to receive help in your time of need. And you guys want to go back to doing things the way you did before? Don't ever go back there. And I think that's a, a warning for us. We don't ever want to go back to the way we live before we knew Jesus Christ, before we put our faith in Him. We don't ever want to go back to trying to live life based on our own terms, trying to do things our own way, trying to solve the problems with our own wisdom rather than the wisdom of Jesus. Because the result is, if we do that, we will fall away and we will experience the curses that go along with that. We will lose the blessings that go along with obedience. So, so don't go back. And the way that we don't go back is we do the third thing that we're going to talk about. And that is to be diligent to keep growing. I think Brian did a great job last week of talking about how we do that in the passage right before it. That's why the passage before it is so key to understanding what's being written here. If you missed that message last week, if you were gone, man, I want to encourage you. Go back and listen to that or watch that message because he does a great job of, of talking about some practical ways to make sure that we're diligent to keep growing. But the bottom line is we have to be intentional about that. It's not just going to happen by accident. We have to make sure that we're taking some steps to do that day by day. Now this morning, if you're joining us, and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ before, then this passage ought to be a sober warning to you. Because there are some serious consequences with not putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why this, this book of Hebrews over and over and over again keeps talking about why you need to make that decision today. And I can't possibly overemphasize the importance of you doing that today. So if you've never done that, we would love to help you walk through putting your faith in Jesus. It's, it's a simple process.
But I know that, that most of the rest of you joining us, or at least from what I can tell, I mean, nobody really knows for sure, right? But from what I can tell, you appear to be genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. And for you, this, this passage ought to be a warning to make sure that you're taking intentional steps day by day in your walk with Jesus to grow in Him so that you don't fall away either. But the good news is, that when we do, and we all will do that from time to time, that we have this great high priest sitting at the right hand of God who loves us, who's praying for us, who's cheering us on. And we can rest in that knowledge. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a sobering passage. It reminds us that there are serious consequences to falling away from our faith in Jesus. But at the same time, Father, we're also encouraged because we understand that for those who are genuine disciples of Jesus, that our, our salvation is secure. But Lord, we don't we want to miss out on those blessings. We don't want to miss out on your rest. We don't want to experience curses and discipline in our life. So would you just help us day by day to take those steps that we need to take to grow in our faith with Jesus, to know you better. And Father, if there's anyone joining us today who's never put their faith in you, who's never made you both Savior and Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to their heart. Father, I know there's no words that I can say, no words that any human can say that would convince them to do that. But Father, would your Holy Spirit, would He just speak to their heart right now? Convict them of their sin. Convict them of their need for a Savior. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus.